If you have a Bible with you today, I want to invite you to find Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We are starting a new series uh, today, uh, and this is probably where we're going to be for most of the summer. Actually, last summer, we kind of took the summer about 16 weeks, and we went through the book of Acts, just kind of story by story by story as we went. Uh, And I really love being able to do that. I love not feeling rushed. Like sometimes it's like, okay, we have to get through this book of the Bible. We have to do this. Um, I love when we can just slow down and say, hey, let's, let's go through this. Um, and so that's what we're going to be doing for this summer. Uh, and we are going to go through the letter of Ephesians. We are going to try and discern what it is that God is saying to the church in Ephesus, all right, through the Apostle Paul. And then what does it mean for us today? Okay, because that's the order you have to do these things in. You have to, what does this say for them? Okay, what differences are between me and them? Figure those out. Keep that in mind, and now we transfer it to us today. We can't just go through and uh, um, just read a little bit here and there and, and, and pull it away from everything else. Like, uh, there's a book where the author says, uh, don't ever just read, don't read Bible verses. Read, read chunks, read letters, read sections, like Bible verses. Reading singular Bible verses uh, at times can result in a really unhealthy view of, of Scripture because we remove it from what it originally meant. All right, so let's just kind of be ready for this today. Maybe you've spent time studying this letter before. Maybe this is completely new to you. Either way, uh, I want us right now just to begin to prepare our hearts and our minds for what God has for each of us today. All right, and, and I don't think that's going to be the same thing. Every single one of us is in a different spot. You have different things going on in your life. You're in a different place with your relationship with God. Um, and so what God has for each of us might be very different. Um, but I do believe that God has something for every single one of us. So uh, I want to do this. I want to open in prayer. Would you stand with me if you're willing and able? Um, would you stand with me? And I want to just kind of open us in prayer before we move on. So Lord, we, just, we ask that as we, as we open your word yet again, God, that every time we open the Bible, that we would expect that we are going to be changed. God, that we would expect that you have something for us. Lord, we aren't just reading the same things over and over. God, we want to be changed by this. We want to be challenged by this. So Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning. Jesus, we ask that in your name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. Now, prior to jumping into the letter itself, uh, which we will do briefly at the end today, We're going to look at the greeting kind of at the end of today. I want to give us a little bit of background in some things that I think are important to know before we jump into a letter. All right? Um, I want us to understand what writing a letter in the first century, composing it, what that kind of looked like. I think we need to know some things about the city of Ephesus, uh, the city where uh, the church is at that Paul's writing this letter to. We should understand Paul's relationship to that church in that city. And then I think we should understand a little bit about that, that church after Paul as well. Okay, so we're, we're going to look at a few different background things here that I think really are important for the rest of this series. Like, you're probably going to hear me in future weeks say, hey, if you missed the first week, go back and watch that. You know, not that you need to watch every single one of them, but I think this week is going to be important. So the first thing I want us to think about a little more is the process of how these letters came into existence. All right, I think that what our view of the Bible is and how the Bible came about plays into this, okay? And, and so I'm, I'm going to say something here that's a little bit exaggerated, all right? But I think for some people, they, they don't actually believe this, but if they stop and assess, like, how their life plays out, they act as if they do. And so somewhere along the lines, like, this idea seemed to happen where uh, there was, like, this opening in the clouds 
and a, a white and golden beam of light came down and through that beam just floated down the Bible. Just slowly, 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 this beautiful book in King James. No. And it landed at the feet of, you know, whoever, the, the Pope or the Founding Fathers or the early church or something. And okay, I, I know that we don't actually believe that, but sometimes we approach the Bible in that type of a way, all right? Um, and, and when we take the ideas uh, of Scripture, and, and, and so Scripture is inspired, like we believe that, I believe that. Uh, but then we take this, the idea that uh, you'll hear words like this, that Scripture is inerrant or infallible, which are big words to say that there aren't any errors in it, there's nothing wrong in it. Um, and even though I, I believe that, those those words, I think, can be twisted to kind of mean something that they aren't meant to. All right, and so I, I want to walk through this a little bit first, okay, because when we have the wrong idea of the Bible, we think of it as this mysterious book that maybe we could never understand. Um, and the reality is I think we have a huge responsibility to understand the Bible and, and what it is that, that it's trying to say and how it was written and how it came about and and so I want to walk through this, okay? And I, and I should explain my thoughts of, of inerrancy and infallibility so you don't think I'm a heretic. Uh, I do believe the Bible's inspired. I believe we have the exact Bible that we are supposed to have and that God intended us to have. I have a very high view of Scripture. I don't think that they got it wrong, all right? But I do struggle when we try to make statements about something being without errors because what are we saying is without errors? Like, I can say I believe the Bible's without errors, but what I mean by that and what you might think I mean by that might be two different things, okay? And so what is without errors? The original copy that the apostles maybe wrote down or the different original authors wrote, is that without errors? What about the manuscripts of the copies of it? A manuscript is someone who has taken the original and they've written a copy and then someone writes a copy of that copy. Is that without errors? Okay, or... or Maybe the English translations that we have, is that without errors? Because we've taken those manuscripts in the original Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and we've translated them into English. Is that without errors? What about the way that I interpret the Bible? Is that without errors? So you can see there's, there's this long stretch here, and we need to kind of figure out where does that land, okay? Um, and, and what about when the Bible is stating, like, their understanding of the world at that time. You know, I've said this before, I had a, I had a young guy in Duluth try and argue with me that, that the earth is flat because the Bible says so when you read this in King James and you see this, and, and he, was, he was very adamant and he was pointing this out. Okay, if their understanding of the earth was that it was flat, if they put things in the Bible that lean towards that, does that mean that the Bible has errors in it? You know, and so some of these things I think we need to think through. What, what about the fact that we are missing portions of um, letters back and forth? What we have is 1st and 2nd Corinthians uh, is actually pretty widely held is probably 2nd and 4th Corinthians because there's other letters that were written back and forth between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth. He quotes in 1st Corinthians from a letter that was previously written. And now as I kind of walk through these things, none of these things for me make me think any less of the Bible. They don't. But it's kinda, it goes back to what we were saying in our last foundational series. When we hang on to the wrong things too tightly, uh, things, things can get hard. And so uh, I don't want to just, uh, like the way that we phrase some of these things, like I think is important. And this is not just a Josiah thing. Um, just so you know, like scholars kind of 
argue back and forth on these words of inerrancy and infallibility. But what everybody kind of says is, is that we have trustworthiness in the Bible. We have the book we're supposed to have. We can trust what the Bible says. As far as some of those different details, those are things that, that we need to kind of understand. Otherwise, we walk out of here and with the, hanging on to the wrong thing, someone can argue, well, you know the Bible says the earth is flat, so you might as well just throw the whole Bible away. Because if they can't get that right, then, you know, and God supposedly inspired it, God could have told them it, was, it wasn't flat. You know, and things like that where you're like, okay, we need to hang on to these things in, in the right way. All right? Um, and so I, I think that what happens is we end up arguing for things that the Bible never initially meant to say. And we say, well, everything's true, and so we have to take everything 100% literally as well. Okay, well, some of those things maybe are meant to be that way, some are not. What, what about, like, when we're reading through different genres, as we talked about in the last series? And if someone is, is telling a story and they're doing it through poetry, and they never intended to get every single detail 100% right because they're doing this through poetry, is the Bible then wrong because they don't have every single detail right? Well, only if you're reading that poetry like it's supposed to have everything 100%. And so how we approach the Bible is very important. Um, and, and I think, unfortunately, for some people, they've taken the Bible and they've elevated it to being like part of the Godhead. It's almost the Bible is like the fourth member of the Trinity. And, you know, we believe in the inspiration of Scripture. And so I, I wanted to try and kind of walk out this tension here a little bit. Uh, understand, I fully, like, we have the Bible we are supposed to have. I don't think we were meant to have those other two letters from Corinthians. If we were, we would have them. I think that when they voted on, on what they had at the council, like that this is inspired, that this is accurate, that this is trustworthy. And, and that's what matters. Now, as we kind of move into letters and how a letter was written, I think that this is important to understand because some of the things I'm about to say about how letters were written at that time, uh, that it might not be how we thought it was. Okay? So I think that in my head for a long time, when I think of Paul writing a letter, I would think of Paul sitting in this like dark room by candlelight and he prays and the Holy Spirit fills that room and fills him and he, he grabs a pen and he just begins to write. And the Holy Spirit gives him every single word and he writes that whole letter out one time through nicely and picks it up and says, boom, there you go. That's, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. And I think that, that was kind of my mindset oftentimes. Um, now we don't know exactly how Paul wrote his. But there's been a lot of study into first century letter writing. Um, and some of the things that Paul says, I think we can begin to understand probably the process of what this looked like. All right? Um, and, and because the, the scene that I just described is almost guaranteed not how it happened. Actually, we can say it's guaranteed not how it happened because of things that Paul says in the letter. So writing letters in the ancient world, uh, first off, it was very expensive. It's been estimated that the, the first... Corinthian letter would have cost somewhere between $2,100 and $2,400. All right, so over $2,000 to write that letter. And, and so why, why would it cost so much? Well, usually when you write a letter, you actually would hire a secretary to write that letter. All right, the, um, and the tools that are used to write letters were not common to every single household. A secretary would have access to those. You are most likely writing uh, on papyrus. All right, I actually have this here. I bought this in Cairo. It was at a shop in Cairo that still does papyrus. Their claim to fame is they're like, this is exactly how it was done. 
first century. You can kind of, when you look close, you can see vertical and horizontal that have been woven together. And they kind of say on their little slip, like this is as accurate as you can get as first century Egyptian papyrus. Um, now an interesting thing with papyrus, I'm gonna take this here. Some of you guys are like, what are you doing? Are you kidding me? All right, so I'm drawing a little squiggle on there. Papyrus is a finicky thing. And when you get it wet, and you begin to scrub on it, you will actually lose the ink that's on there. As you can see, kind of right in the middle of that is where that ink was. It'll dry out, it's gonna stay the same. It was kind of difficult to write something down and say this should be kept for thousands and thousands of years. And so this was not accessible to every single person at that time. Um, they would often write, because of this, they would write on these wax tablets that were held in wooden frames. All right, and so papyrus needed to stay dry. Those wax tablets actually needed to stay wet. They'd cover it with leather to kind of protect it. And so they'd jot those things down on wax tablets and, and it, it was a way of kind of protecting it. They'd carry those things with them. Paul most likely had several of these. Um, and so you can see here, like the writing was not necessarily done by the author. This is why Paul in some of his letters, uh, we see him write this out. It says, I am writing these words. Look at what big letters I'm using. Okay, so think of that, like I read out a, a card to my parents for their birthday, and then somewhere in there, my, my, one of my children wants to write something. They didn't write the whole thing, but my, my parents can tell what part my children wrote, hopefully. Okay, my handwriting's not amazing, but it's a little bit better. You know, they look at it, and you're like, okay, I hope Josiah is getting his E's going the right way, all right? And uh, so it's the same type of idea where Paul kind of is like, hey, what, let me write this real quick. See what large letters I'm using? Like, I'm writing this portion right here. Like, you can see this. Um, now, not only were you hiring someone to write for you, but most likely you were not just rattling things off uh, and they were writing them down word for word. Often at the beginning or the end of some of Paul's letters, it says someone else is with him and sending the letter with him as, as like a co-author. So we have people like Sosthenes, Timothy, Silas, like they were all written in there as co-authors contributing to the letter. And the letter might not be sitting down and saying, this is exactly what we want it to say with all new content. It might be pulling together things that they've written down previously, compiling this all together. Maybe Paul and his companions on the road, they're sitting there talking, okay, this is going on in the church in Corinth. What are we going to do about this? How are we going to word this? Well, if we say it that way, I don't know if they're going to get the right message. And, and if, we, if we phrase it this way, and okay, pull out your wax tablet. Let's write that down. Let's save that for later. Okay, we need to kind of figure out how we're going to do this. Most likely, they would have made several drafts of a letter before one being finalized and sent. Again, that adds to the cost of a letter. And it might have taken weeks or even months from start to finish for a letter. They would be dialoguing about how to put everything together and, and the words and things. And, and Paul pulled from the Old Testament. He pulled, um, you know, he's, he's constantly quoting either 
small portions or large portions of the Old Testament. And sometimes we see that and we have a little annotation like in our Bible. Sometimes we miss that. Sometimes he's purposely pulling themes and it's not actual quotes. All right, he, there's different times where uh, scholars know that Paul is, is quoting from like a hymn. There was a common kind of hymn or a, a phrase in a confessional that they maybe would have said. All right, and um, he's pulling from other letters. We actually see that in Ephesians and Colossians, there are large chunks that are very, very similar. Chunks that are word for word, where it's like saying some of the same things. He's like, hey, I said this to this church. This church also needs to hear this. All right, and then and finally, when they finished a letter, they would have selected specific people to deliver that letter. All right, think about this. Pete, who works for the post office right now, if I, if I wrote this out on a piece of papyrus and I said, okay, I need you to, to make, you know, a several month journey with this letter and you need to keep this safe, it better not get wet because everything's going to be lost, all right, and this is incredibly important. And then besides that, the person that delivered the letter often would be the first, they would be the person to get up in front if it was written to a group and they would read it to everybody, all in one sitting. Everyone would gather and we would say, okay, guys, we got a new letter from Paul. Let's see how he's yelling at us today, all right? And they'd read it out. And this person who reads it would also then be the one that would field the questions from anyone in the room. Well, hold, hold on, hold on. What did Paul mean by that right there? Okay, well, here's what Paul's saying. And they would expound on it. They would answer those questions and so you can imagine, like, Pete's probably sitting here thinking, I'm really glad I was not the mailman for the Apostle Paul. That sounds like a pretty stressful job. All right, but this, this shows the importance of some of those things we, we skip over in letters. Like the fact that Romans, the longest of Paul's letters, arguably the most theologically dense of his letters, was hand-delivered by someone named Phoebe, a deacon in her church that she was the first one to expound on one of the arguably most theologically deep letters that there was. And so, all these different things that are going on here in this, like, is such a big deal. I know when I heard, uh, first heard more in depth about the writing of letters in the first century, like, it blew my mind. Like, what I thought this looked like completely changed. All right, like, this wasn't the Holy Spirit taking over Paul's body and moving his hand and forcing him to write things. All right, we see authors' personalities and writing styles coming through in these letters. All right, that's how we know that, like, parts of these letters were like, we don't know if that's actually original to Paul. One of the people who was copying this might have expounded on something there, put it in there, and over time it ended up in there. All right, and some of those things, when we hold the wrong idea of of how these letters came together, what scripture looks like, that can really throw us for a loop and say, I don't know if I can trust this. But again, like this, this is important. Like none of this hinders the ability of the Holy Spirit to work through the authors and inspire scripture. It just requires us to have a better understanding of how the Spirit can work. All right, and so as I have like dug into this, and if you wanna, if you wanna geek out more and go into this, uh, there's a, a great book that's uh, Paul in writing of like first century letters. Um, I have the author uh, come and talk to me afterwards. All right, and this, this book just goes in crazy depth of this guy that has studied all these letters from that time, studied Paul, um, all these different things. It's amazing to see some of these. So as we go through the book of Ephesians here, we, we have to remember some of this. I think this, this plays into it. All right, this whole process, it sounds more honestly like publishing a book 
than writing a simple correspondence like I think we often do. All right? And, all right, so I want us to understand a little bit of the history of Ephesus as well. Uh, but I'm not going to go real in-depth on this because there's actually a lot of thought that this letter maybe wasn't written specifically to Ephesus, but to the churches in that area. All right? Because some of the earliest manuscripts that we have uncovered, later ones have Ephesus written in there, earlier ones did not. So many times these letters would be passed from church to church. That's okay. The things that Ephesus, the church in Ephesus is dealing with, a lot of the other churches probably are too. The things culturally that are happening there, they're probably happening in other places. All right, but I think it is important for us to understand some of this. So Ephesus was a Greek colony that was turned into the Roman capital of like Asia, Asia Minor, this area. All right, it was a busy commercial port. Okay, so if we think of Ephesus and these letters going to these little churches, this is not like, hey, let's send a letter up to Eagle Bend, okay, and talk to that church up there, or, or, or the Apostle Paul sending a letter to Long Prairie, you know, a little Long Prairie in Minnesota, all right? Uh, this was a busy commercial port. It connected the east with Greece and Rome. They had a 10,000-person amphitheater that we see in the book of Acts, okay? It had a large occult and witchcraft scene in Ephesus. It was the headquarters for the cult or the worship of the goddess Diana, that's the Roman name, or the goddess Artemis, that's the Greek name, kind of the same, same god in that idea. Uh, her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world before it was destroyed. So this, this is big. Like in today's world, that, that's like going and seeing the, the pyramids, the Great Wall, the Taj Mahal, like something really big. Needless to say, Ephesus was a big deal. All right, this city. It is estimated to have probably about a quarter of a million people, which at the time would make it the second largest city in the world. So this is a big deal where this letter's going. And Paul had some history with the city. In Acts, he stops briefly in chapter 18 while he's traveling with Priscilla and Aquila. He then travels back to Ephesus later. He spends three months in the synagogue teaching uh, Jewish people, trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. They become stubborn, and after that, he spends the next two years in Ephesus with the church, with the believers, every single day gathering and teaching them, talking to them. Paul was very closely connected to the church in Ephesus. This is also where uh, we see some things that we don't see anywhere else in the scripture that are quite amazing. Uh, people being cured of sickness and diseases by taking a handkerchief that Paul had touched and bringing it to the sick person and them being healed. And we're like, I don't really know what to do with that sometimes. <laughs> You're like, that, that's really interesting. And so we see these different things. And, and I think it's important to understand some of this background in Ephesus. If people in that city, if there was a, a massive occult following, a lot of spiritual things going on there, they were probably used to seeing spirits move in a different way. We can say those are demonic spirits or anything like that, but they're used to seeing that. So in that unique situation, God probably saw fit to use unique ways to spread the gospel that fit that culture in that context. This is where the seven sons of Sceva try casting out demons and they're doing it in the name of Jesus and the name of Paul and it's this amazing and terrifying moment where the demons speak back and they say, hey, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but who are you? Can you imagine in that moment and these guys, like they get whooped and it literally says they, they run out of there naked and beat like they're just like somehow like these guys just got it handed to them all right this is this is Ephesus as a result of that encounter 
um, and then the different healings that are happening with the Apostle Paul and things like that, they actually said that people gathered together, brought their, their books, their spell books, the occult books, things that they had, and they threw them together and they burned them. And what's crazy, you're in this big city and they burn what's estimated to be millions of dollars worth of books. That will disrupt an economy. Now, how do we know it's millions of dollars? Well, in scripture it says 50,000 silver pieces. And one silver piece was a day's wage. That means that is 137 years worth of wages if you work seven days a week. That is a lot of money. And so you can imagine this happening and the city being upset about this. Think about the people that are, that are making this. And this is what we see happen in the book of Acts. This massive riot then happens. The people that are there making statues for Artemis. The people that are writing these books, selling these books, putting these books together. Now all of a sudden the economy is being completely disrupted because Paul is saying, hey, nope, uh, Artemis is not a real god. You're, you're not worshiping her. These occult practices are wrong. People are getting rid of stuff. And... and the city goes nuts. And so these workers come together and they start to chant and they, they make a mob. They start going down the street and they get to the amphitheater of this 10,000 person seat place and they're in there and they're chanting for two hours um, or something like that. Two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Like they're just chanting this over and over and over. Okay, and because Paul has walked into this city and turned it upside down and destroyed everything that kind of mattered to them, all right? This is like if you go into Wisconsin and you just start getting rid of all their cheese curds, all right? They're just going to riot. You're going to have cows coming after you and it's going to be crazy, all right? Like this was their livelihood. This is what they were known for. This was the center of everything and Paul disrupts this. He had an incredibly close relationship with this city. At the end of his time, he kind of continued on after these two years. We see him, he, he wants to go back to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And then from there, he's going to end up going on to, to Rome. He wants to do that. He doesn't quite know that he is doing that. He definitely doesn't know how he's doing it, which is as a prisoner. But before that, he says, okay, I, I, want, to, I want to talk to the people in Ephesus. But if I go in there, it's going to take way too long. Essentially, I think what he's saying here is like, it's going to be a Minnesota goodbye. I need to stop in and say, hey, love you guys, see you. And this is going to be that like, all right, well, yep, slowly, okay, we'll move towards the door. Now we're out in the parking lot, now we're, and we're still talking. Paul's like, it's going to take too long. And so he stops at a, at a different bay, and he says, hey, would you guys, would the elders of the church come to meet me? And they meet together, and they pray together, and they cry together. And it's this final, like, goodbye. And so we see Paul has this incredibly close rela relationship with the church in Ephesus. It's a, it's a massive city. Paul wrote the first letter to Corinthians probably while he was in Ephesus. He writes his letters to Timothy when Timothy is in Ephesus. So he said the, the book of Ephesus, it doesn't talk a lot about what's going on there. First and second Timothy do. Timothy is there. He is trying to step in and, and help this church, which is going through some pretty massive things. And, uh, and Paul's writing to Timothy saying, hey, lock it down. Lock this church down. Figure this stuff out. This is really unhealthy. This unhealthy false gospel is spreading like wildfire. Lock it down. Take control of it. All right, so First and Second Timothy, they, they give us more insights into what's happening in Ephesus. The Apostle John is thought to have been an overseer at one time there. Um, Ephesus is mentioned in the book of Revelation. He says, hey, you've, you've lost your first love. 
you've fallen into just the habits of going through the motions of being a Christian. He says you're doing everything you're supposed to do, but you've, you've lost that love. You know, it reminds me of the, the psalm. It says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. They've lost that love of why they're doing it. They're going through the motions. That same reason, that's why we gather with our volunteers on Sunday morning to remind us why is it that we're doing this. This letter is about bringing together the scattered and, and, and fractured family of God. First half of the letter gives an overview of what the gospel is. The second half says, this is how you live it out. This is how you be the church. And so this is why every church needs to hear this. All right, and, and I think that because many of our problems in, in our world and in our church, they stem from the fact that we forget that we are citizens of two kingdoms. All right? We are citizens of two kingdoms. And I think too often, we either end up pursuing Jesus and withdrawing from the world, or we become so preoccupied with this world that we forget that we belong to Jesus. And we have to figure out how to do both. How do we pursue Jesus? How do we live in this world and engage in this world? All right, and so this book that we're going to go in through over this summer, it's, it, it's amazing. And one of the commentators, he said this. He said, pound for pound, word for word, Ephesians may well be the most influential document ever written. Within the history of Christianity, only the Psalms, the Gospel of John, and Romans have been so instrumental in shaping the life and thought of Christians, but all three of these works are much longer than the few pages of this letter. Ephesians provides some of the most direct and practical guidelines for living found in Scripture. Now, not every subject is covered by any means, but the foundation and guidelines are so clear that application to other issues follows directly. Be warned, however, he says, Ephesians does not give a list of rules to follow, nor can, res uh, nor can respond by superficial or easy. This letter requires us to change our inner being and character in a radical way. Life can no longer merely happen, for all of our activity must now take place in, to, and for the Lord. So I'm excited for us to go through this book. It's huge that we can find something new. And I want to quickly read through just the greeting here because the greeting of a letter is important. It usually tips the hat of where this letter is going to go and some of the main themes in it. All right? And we need to try and have a, a robust understanding of this letter. Like even some of the things we're talking about today, you're like, why are you doing this? This is important for us to truly engage and to pull out what God has for us. All right? This is what we need to do with God and his character. We need to spend more time focusing on him and his character. And that'll help us engage with him more. We need to do this with the world around us as well. All right, having a better understanding of the story that we are stepping into. So quickly here, here's the greeting. It says, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All right, it's pretty basic. We can already see one of the themes taking place here. All right, greetings in a letter, they're important. They introduce some of the major themes sometimes. Paul speaks of himself as an apostle that is chosen by God. An apostle is someone who is sent out, okay? Uh, and then he refers to God's people as, as God's holy people. Some translations will say saints. I think that gives us uh, sometimes the wrong idea of the, the, these like perfect people gathering. Holy people, holy means set apart, drawn out, all right? And so what he's saying here, Paul's establishing this idea that both he and the people he is writing to are different from the world. They are set apart. They are pursuing Jesus and pursuing things that the rest of the world would not be. 
And that is the tension that will be explored in this letter through the summer for us. Let's stand together. I want to close this. I want to do this as we prepare to leave, though. Uh, I always want to bring this back and say, what is God asking of me today? We, ha- we have weeks where I think it's important to stop and have a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, uh, but we want to say, okay, what does this mean for me today? How's, how's my week different because of this? And that's important. And even though I think most of today probably felt like you were sitting in a classroom of a school that you never remember enrolling in, uh, because you would never knowingly enroll yourself in school again, um, I, I think we have things to pull out of this and to challenge ourselves. Uh, we went deeper because learning more about a situation helps us engage better. I know we have people here who are wanting to engage with members of your family in conversations about faith or coworkers that you work alongside with and you want to be able to share your faith with them better or friends that just haven't quite felt the same way about God as you have. All right, and here's my challenge for you. Who in my life do I need to learn more about so I can engage with them on a deeper level? Because when we start to learn more about someone else, we learn about their story, we learn about their background, we learn about the things that have happened in their life, the way that people have, have, have treated them before, their experiences as they've walked through the doors of a church or interacted with Christians before. When we start to learn those things, it's going to give us a better insight of how do we engage with them on a deeper level. Instead of just right away jumping out and saying, hey, I know what the answer is for you. It's Jesus. And that might be true. But, but Paul was, was amazing at this in his letters, understanding. We see this in the book of Acts as he went into different towns. And the one, they have all these statues everywhere. And there's one that says to the unknown God. And Paul begins to preach and he says, hey, that unknown God, I know who that is. That's Jesus. And he uses things that they know. Jesus does the same thing with his parables. He uses things that make sense, that are from their background. And so in the same way in our life, if you want to engage with people in your life, you want to engage with coworkers, with family members, spend more time listening than talking. Get to a place where you can say, okay, maybe even how, how have I let you down? You know, if, if I'm a believer and they aren't, what things have I done? that have left a bad taste in your mouth of not wanting to become a Christian, not wanting to engage with God. So that's our first challenge. And when it comes to this theme of following after God but still not completely disengaging with the world, all right, the second challenge, and this is assuming that we do not have this perfect, all right, which I think I can make that assumption of all of us. Do I lean more towards pursuing Jesus and disengaging from the world or do I lean more towards pursuing the world and disengaging from Jesus. Okay, so I'm assuming that none of us have this perfect, all right, because we are supposed to ride this tension. We are supposed to live as citizens of both kingdoms. So the question is, if you don't have this perfect, which way do you lean more? Okay, and I'm not even saying that you need to figure out the answer to that, how to fix that, any of that. I think before we dive into this letter, if this is going to be a theme that kind of comes up here and there, we should be honest about ourselves and where we're at. So for you, do you tend to engage with God more and disengage with the world? Or do you engage with the world and disengage from God? It's not saying you're completely one or the other, but where do you fall in that spectrum? It's important for us to know before we jump into this, I think. All right, so we're going to continue that next week. 
If you want to go watch the Bible Project video on Ephesians, I think that's great. We always recommend those videos. Um, I think it'll help you have a better understanding as we go into this as well. I want to close with some prayer. God, thank you for, Lord, your word. And when we begin to understand how this came about, God, your hand that had to be over this situation, God, that had to be over these letters that, uh, that have caused them to survive all of these years in different ways, all the manuscripts that we have, God, that we would not take this for granted. Lord, that, w- that we would understand that we, we have this accessibility that so many people in the world today still don't have. And yet most of us probably have multiple Bibles sitting on our shelf. God, that we would be willing to engage with that. God, to grow closer to you, to learn about you, learn about your character. God, and that these things would challenge us as we turn around and and continue to engage with this world. God, as we try and be in the world and not of the world. God, that tension that that we walk and we feel. Lord, that we would always be looking for correction and just guidance and and you just kind of bumping us back in the right direction in each one of these things. Lord, let us approach this with just humility. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.